Shannon, have you been listening to any interesting podcasts lately? I sure have. I've been listening to True Crimecast. On True Crimecast, John and Jamie cover the big names and cases everybody wants to hear. Also, they specialize in the small town unknown cases you've never heard of. Every Tuesday, you will hear the details of each case and their analysis of whether or not justice is served. You can find True Crimecast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah, you should head over now and hit subscribe and start listening to True Crimecast today. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Jason Creekmore and Shannon Deaton. Welcome to the show. Today, we are going to discuss one of the most influential horror films ever made. In 1978, a young John Carpenter took very little money and even less time to create his masterpiece, Halloween, and in doing so, forever changed the horror film industry. So sitting across from me is my partner in crime, Shannon Deaton. What's up in your world, man? Man, I've been so much looking forward to this particular episode. Um, Halloween is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it was just so exciting to get to interview Tony Moran, which we're going to discuss here in just a bit. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is a, a really, really good episode. When Shannon and I first decided to dedicate a podcast episode uh, to Halloween and Michael Myers, we thought what better way to gain information than to actually interview Michael Myers. So we did. The Tug Valley Convention and Visitors Bureau, which is in Williamson, West Virginia, recently hosted Mr. Tony Moran, who was literally the face behind the mask in the original 1978 Halloween. Mr. Moran was the featured guest at the organization's haunted house, which was located at the old hospital on College Hill. Once we found out about the event, we reached out to the director of the Tug Valley Chamber of Commerce, Wes Wilson, and the vice president of the Tug Valley Convention and Visitors Bureau, Tanya Webb, to see if Mr. Moran would be interested in an interview. And just a couple of days later, Wes and Tanya set the whole thing up for us. And for that, we would like to extend a very sincere thank you. So on October 12th, uh, last Saturday, Shannon and I took about a three and a half hour drive to Williamson, West Virginia, to interview Tony Moran. So, Shannon, tell us a little bit about your thoughts uh, on the trek there. Just the 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 road, the the town, the little road leading up to the hospital, the whole environment. Man, it was it was just awesome from beginning to end. So, just imagine us in the car driving down the road. Like you said, it was about a three hour trip, and the whole way we're just discussing the questions that we're going to ask Tony Moran and kind of bouncing ideas back and forth off of each other. And when you roll into Williamson, West Virginia, it's just across the Kentucky-West Virginia line. And <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just across. I think a CVS pharmacy is sort of the boundary. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Sales tax is different in, in the first half of the store than it is the back half yeah, of the store. Yeah, you go to the front, it's Kentucky tax. The back <clears throat> is right. West Virginia tax. But yeah, we rolled into the town. There's this huge sign that says, Welcome to Williamson. And I think we kind of crept by it slowly and tried to snap a picture <laughs> we did the motion. best we did the best we could <laughs> yeah. so immediately after you roll into the town i think there's a right turn that we made and then that started us on the track toward the old hospital and i feel like jason the farther we went the narrower <laughs> that road uh, started to become and i started to get really excited also very nervous i think it hit me at that point that we are literally driving toward the current location of Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when, when we actually got to the very top and we were rounding the curve, you know, as soon as I saw it, I thought, this is something directly out of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the Haunted Mansion. You have the people there that are all dressed up. I mean, it definitely looked the part. I loved it. it we just saw the hospital emerge over the top of the <laughs> yeah. hill, and it, it was almost like slowly rising out of the smoke. I mean, I really had that sense of tension in my chest. And when we rolled in, do you remember this? The first thing we saw were these two characters who were part of the haunted house that was yeah. going on. At the oh, time. yes, yes. So there were nurses, and I think I saw someone dressed as uh, Freddy Krueger. And uh, before we got over the hill, we started questioning ourselves, are we going to the right place? Are, are we about to <laughs> arrive, uh, arrive at the old hospital? 
And I think all of those doubts were put to rest. (laughs) (laughs) When I saw those nurses, they had blood all over them. I thought, I certainly hope this is the right place. (laughs) Yeah, otherwise we've stumbled into our own version of Halloween. That's that's right. So uh, it was very exciting. And one thing that we discussed on the trip is that in the 2018 Halloween remake, you might remember this, Jason, there were two podcasters uh, in the film (laughs) who went to the home of Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and they knocked on the gate. I guess they didn't knock on the gate, but they they buzzed (laughs) the gate. buzzed in or whatever, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis let them in. They sat down and they interviewed her. But ultimately, their goal through interviewing Laurie Strode was to interview Michael Myers. And the whole time we were making this trek, I started making these parallel connections in my mind and really connecting the dots here and thinking, we're living out what the plot of this movie (laughs) actually entailed. And it did not end well for those two. (laughs) So I I had that in the back of my mind the whole time. Yeah. Now, whenever we actually got inside the building, I think we stood around for a little bit. We talked to to Wes Wilson and Tanya Webb, who were the uh, orchestrators of the event. Very nice folks. Great folks. Uh, Wonderful community. It seemed like a lot of people had come in to support the event, and it was just awesome. So it wasn't long before the blazer rolled in uh, containing Tony Moran. He stepped out, and I think for a moment, everyone just kind of stared at him. Yeah. Just to kind of see... What is this individual going to do? You know, this this is Michael Myers. <laughs> so he he was very personable. Did did you get that impression? Oh, oh yeah, he's such very, a nice guy. Yeah, very uh, very accommodating. Uh, just very very approachable. Because I you know, I didn't really know what to expect. Yeah, and he was fantastic. He absolutely yeah. was. So he entered the building. Uh, he had a merchandising table set up where he was signing autographs right in the foyer of the old hospital. So we took our first steps over the threshold. We entered this old hospital, which they told us a little bit about the story of the place. I think it was built in the 1920s. I think so, yeah. yeah. Sometime around there. And uh, it had been operational for several decades, uh, but uh, it had also not been operational for several decades. Right. <laughs> this is a really old building with a, a ton of, of history behind it. Sure. And I think they actually said that there were doctors who had their offices located there through 2012. Uh, to some degree, yeah. there were a couple offices still operating in there. But if you were to look at the outside, uh, there were windows that were shattered and boarded up. Uh, the paint and everything was sort of peeling off of the face of the building, and it really set the tone for what we were about to do. And I really got that sense of shock and awe yeah, <laughs> when absolutely. I walked into this hospital. And um, the the folks there who organized it, they had you know given us a space to conduct the interview so we kind of went around the corner from Tony's merchandising desk and as we did we saw all of these characters who would <laughs> later be participating in the haunted house and we entered this room and when we went in it was exactly what you would expect an old hospital from the 1920s to look like you know we we had a few chairs scattered around we had um, you know, hanging folders and things on the walls. And we had this window that we could look out and kind of see the estate and uh, all of that. And then when we were ready, we took a few moments to set up our equipment. We got the microphone hooked <laughs> up. We got the computer set up and, and got the recording ready. And, uh, you know, one of the organizers just looked at us and said, are you ready for us to bring Tony? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, Tony, yes. Uh, Michael, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if I see a mask come around that corner, that's probably it for the interview. I'm out. (laughs) So Tony comes into the room. Uh, He's very accommodating. He smiles. He shakes our hands. And he sits down opposite of us. And for just a moment, you know, I'm this 11-year-old kid who's watching Halloween and thinking about this movie and, you know, growing up and realizing now, uh, as all of this is occurring, that Michael Myers has just sat down opposite me and he's put on a headset (laughs) (laughs) and he's ready for me to ask him some some questions. So it was truly exciting. It was um, honestly one of the uh, more memorable events in my life. It was very cool. So at this time, Jason, let's go ahead and go to the interview we conducted with Mr. Tony Moran in the old hospital on College Hill. Let's do it. This is Shannon and Jason, and we are live from Williamson, West Virginia, seated here in the 
old hospital on College Hill, and uh, in front of us here is Mr. Tony Moran, the legend, uh, the unmasked Michael Myers from Halloween 1978. Uh, Tony, how are you this evening? I'm doing good. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, we're, we're really excited. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. Yeah, Jason had mentioned we uh, we spent last night just re-watching the film for the probably the hundredth time. <laughs> <laughs> and it never fails. Uh, whenever we come to the scene of, of you taking the mask off, I always do this. I always freeze frame uh, just for a moment to just kind of capture the expression there of, of Tony Moran. It's just uh, <laughs> yeah. such an awesome moment, uh, iconic <laughs> moment in uh, horror movie history. So, you know, in, in thinking about that, that iconic mask, you know, what did you think the first time you, you walked on set and you saw that thing? Because it, it wasn't Michael Myers at first. It was just, that's just a mask. You know, it would eventually become the iconic mask of the Michael Myers. But at the time, what, what did you know about this movie and what did that mask mean to you at all? Uh, you know, my, my agent just told me I had to play some psycho. <laughs> she didn't know about any mask or anything. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> she had to talk me into even going on the interview and because uh, I didn't want to do it. And um, when I went on the interview to meet Erwin Yablons and John Carpenter, they just chit-chatted with me for like 10 minutes. Yeah. They, they didn't even tell me anything about the movie. We didn't talk about the movie at all. So you're just a psycho as far as you know. That's all I knew. Was <laughs> some, I was playing some psycho. So I had signed the contract, and they got my measurements, and I got my set date and the address of where I had to go film. And when I got there, and I asked for the, the lady that was supposed to be doing the wardrobe and all that, that's when she brought everything, and that's when I, she brought a mask, you know, the, you know, <laughs> sure. the, the boots and the coveralls and the yeah. mask and a jar of Vaseline. Wow. Now, what was that for? My hair. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so... You know, I pointed at the mask and I said, you know, what's that for? She goes, oh, you got to wear it. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Because <laughs> I'm an actor. I'm not some puppet or something. Yeah, right? yeah. Sesame Street or something. You know? <laughs> and I was like, she goes, yeah, you got to wear it. I go, you got to be kidding me. And she could tell I was really getting upset. You know, I was like, nobody told me this, you know. <laughs> what kind of movie is this? <laughs> and she said, no, 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 don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. At the end of the movie, Jamie Lee Curtis, she's going to take the mask off and you get to see your face for a little bit, you know? And I'm like, oh, God. And I'd already, I'd already signed a contract, you know, and I was broke. I needed the money. And uh, so then I said, what's a jar of Vaseline for? She goes, well, you got a lot of hair. you got to put that Vaseline in your hair. So when she takes that mask off, you know, this mask is 100% latex. It's like Velcro. If you don't have, if you don't have I probably didn't feel good. If you don't have Vaseline in your hair. So we just need it to slide right off, you know? I'm like, Awesome. <laughs> so you're calling your agent and saying, what have you got me? No, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I was just like, I figured nobody's going to see the movie. You know, so I, I really didn't care. Well, a few right. people did. Yeah. <laughs> True enough. And that's, you know, but who knew that was going to happen? You know, um, the mask was the first time it was uh, a mask was introduced into a horror movie. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It was always makeup. Right. I just was like, I just couldn't wait to just get get it over with and go home, you know. Sure. So. Wow. And that's really my next question is like, uh, you know, so when, when you were in that scene, you know, and over the course of, of days as, you, as you're, you know, uh, getting everything lined out and you're getting your role and all that, did you ever think 40 years later that, you no. would be, that we'd be sitting here talking about no. Michael no, Myers? There's no way. There's no way. I mean, <clears throat> look at, you know, see, back then... You know, if you did a horror movie, producers and directors felt like you you uh, sold out. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's not like it is now. So, and there were never any good, the horror movies. You know, they were like schlocky, you know. Yeah. So, you know, if you put that on your credit, you know, on your resume, then producers and directors didn't take you seriously. They didn't think you were a serious actor. It's sort of like way back then, <clears throat> movie stars wouldn't do commercials. Right, yeah. Because that was like selling out. It still is that way, really. You know, you, you look at some commercials, you go, oh, really? <laughs> uh, <laughs> seriously, you needed the money? Yeah, yeah. Really? Come on. Come on. Really? You're doing a state farm commercial or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so anyways, uh, uh, I had no idea, but I just, I knew for sure it was only going to be two weeks in a drive-in, that'd be about it. I mean... 
you know, you, you, the original name of the movie was The Babysitter Killer. Yeah, right. And, you know, when my agent told me that the name of the movie was Halloween for a horror movie, that's about as corny as you can get. <laughs> There's nothing really cornier. You know what I mean? Right. I yeah. mean, how stupid. Kind of cliche. I mean, how yeah. stupid, you know? <laughs> oh, gee, a horror movie called Halloween. Wow. <laughs> yeah. How original and yeah. imaginative, you know? Yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, it took off. You know, it's just crazy. Crazy. But, again, I'm like, I really am the most blessed guy walking the earth, you know, because I didn't want to do the thing in the first place, and I never stayed in touch with anybody except for PJ Souls, maybe, you know, and all that, and... I just, just didn't know. Just, just yeah. crazy, crazy. It's the highest grossing horror movie of all time. It's incredible. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. Our, our family makes a point to watch it every Halloween. Yeah, it's like during Christmas you watch, you know, the Christmas uh, Story. Not <laughs> yeah. Christmas Story, but um, what's that black and white one with Jimmy Stewart? Uh, oh, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like that. You gotta Halloween's watch the it. tradition of Halloween. Yeah, you gotta watch yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Except I can't stand Christmas. <laughs> My favorite holiday is Halloween. There you go. Very good. Well, you know, whenever we, like I was saying, whenever we watch that movie, we always freeze frame that scene. And uh, one thing that stuck out to me last night when I was watching it is there's such a contrast between that mask. It's just the stone monster almost. Mm-hmm. And then when you take that mask off, you just see this almost innocent face right. looking down. Yeah. You know, Were you given any direction on that, or was that just something that was divinely no. inspired? You just no, that, that yeah, it came from me. You know, and I ran it by, um, and I appreciate you noticing, because it, it, it's, it, it's something that I wanted to, I didn't have much time to do anything, and I wanted to portray something, you know, yeah. through that scene. But <clears throat> I had gone to John Carpenter about it, and we talked about it, and, and I told him what my thoughts were, and he's like, that's perfect, perfect. Dude. Well, it sure was because, I mean, because we talked about that actually on the way here, and it seemed as though that uh, you know, the moment that the mask came, came up, that it was like a look of concern. Lost. It, it was just like, yeah, it's like, yeah. I have to get this back on. Like, now. I was lost. Yeah, yeah. and lost. that really came through. That was, But not even panic, just like completely lost. Yeah. yeah. Where I didn't rush to put the mask back on, like, oh, my God, i got to put this back on. It, I didn't do it that way. I did it like, I don't know, where am I? You know, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. What's, yeah. What's, what's happening? You know, what's what's going on? You know, and I just put it back on. Yeah. And then you're back in that reality. Right. Was, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's exactly that right. I appreciate you, yeah. you guys noticing that. Most people don't even bring it up. Yeah, well, it's really That important. was cool. Yeah, yeah, that was a good thing for sure. Absolutely. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, you know, one thing that I thought was fascinating about the movie is that, so it's supposed to take place in, in the fall in Illinois, right? Right. Uh, but it takes place in California, actually. I mean, we shot in shot. April in, 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 in spring. Yeah. So I mean, right. can you tell me a little bit about maybe some of like uh, some of the difficulties or things that yeah you know folks had to do yeah. in order to pull that off to make yeah. it look like you're in Illinois in, at yeah, the end I of can. October? I can. <laughs> they uh, they had bought um, fake leaves that were green, so they had to paint them brown. And they had a a, a fan that they turn on to make the leaves blow down the street and stuff well somebody's got to pick those up right <laughs> and it's an independent movie oh no <laughs> so it's not like it's not like a union thing you know sure so we all help on an independent movie we, everybody helps in with everybody with everything you know it becomes a team thing yeah. stars stars or not we all help helped everything so everybody's bagging the everyone has a break <laughs> The other thing is, uh, if you look closely every now and then, or at least once, I know that, but I think it's more than once, you got to look closely, but you'll see palm tree, palm trees. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I've never noticed that. Oh, yeah. You, you, so, well, they tried really hard to not show it, you know, and they did a really good job, but there's there's a couple scenes where you can see a palm tree, you know. I'm going to have to look for that. Yeah, I've never it's noticed that. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And then... <laughs> Uh, again, low budget wise, you know. See, John Carpenter, he didn't do more than three takes for any scene. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, so everything was pretty rushed, and he had everything formulated, every shot in his head beforehand. But sometimes, you know, because you've got you're focused on something else, and something else happens, and there is a shot. I can't remember what it was, and I can't remember which which house it was. It is, but you can see the the, the wires, the cords. <laughs> okay. On the, on, oh, on, really? the, on the porch, yeah. Now you can see them. But once you know the scene, 
I can't remember what the scene is, but once you know the scene, then you can't not see it. Yeah. Yeah. Was there something about the pumpkins, too? Seems like I remember maybe pumpkins were out of season and they had to do something. Uh, You know, that's a good point. I don't know anything about that, but that's a good point. I don't know. So, you know, that, that theme song, and you've probably heard it, too many times. <laughs> no, no, I can never hear it enough. For <laughs> yeah. sure. So, you know, every time I hear it, it brings up feelings of, of Halloween and, and family because, like I said, we, which is ironic, I guess, given the movie, but we always watch that movie on Halloween. So, what feelings do you have now, 40 years later, when you hear that? Iconic Halloween theme is. Do you are you brought back to 1978 or do you? Have yeah, yeah, I am. I am for sure brought back to it. Absolutely, and 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 it's. Uh, but it also is close to my heart and stuff. So it's kind of you know it's sentimental to me. You know, uh, the, how that music came about was they. You know, it was a low budget movie. You know, and <clears throat> when you do a movie, you do everything first. You shoot it. You know. You uh, edit it, and then you put the credits in, and you do everything. The very last thing you do is music. Right. So they had a music guy that they was that they had hired that was going to do the music. But by the time they finished everything, they didn't have any money. So they couldn't, they couldn't pay the guy. So John Carpenter, who his dad is a professional musician, and John Carpenter is an amateur musician, he spent three days on a keyboard and came up with the music. Wow. Yeah. So, and it's persisted all these years. That's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It amazing. Has some, it's timeless. I'm, I, yeah, I'm not sure if, if there are other, you know, bits of sound that, that, I, that I hear and immediately just become nervous. Yeah. More, more yeah. than that. I mean, yeah. honestly. I mean, just... No, I know what you mean. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. It does the same thing with me, too. It's a, it's a slight trepidation type of feeling or a... Like a like a like a te- like slight tenseness, you know. Yeah, it's just it's just like an overwhelming kind of dread, but it's like you're in right. control, but you're not. <laughs> right. You know. Right. 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 Yeah, and and that music is so pervasive throughout the entire movie. Yeah. They they stay on that beat and stay on right. that that same oh. melody, and it just keeps coming up over and over. Yeah, they they had previewed the movie to studios without music, and it just failed miserably, and the studios weren't interested in the movie at all. Oh wow. Yeah, wow. and so they. The, when they scored it, that's when it, it, things kind of changed. Sure, I can see that because yeah. the music is almost a character in this movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah good point. Good yeah. point. It, it was the movie. The whole movie is just a perfect storm. Yeah, you know, yeah. it just everything came together. It just like Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis didn't want to do the movie either. Oh, wow. oh I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Jan, Janet Lee, your mom, she talked her into it. She wow. said, "Look at you know, this guy's you know, saw his first movie. He's a good, good director, and if this thing takes off." It'll make your career like it did for her. Yeah. In Psycho. So her mom was the one to talk to her into it. She didn't want to do it. Oh, that's that's truly interesting. And she didn't want to play the part she played either. She wanted to play PJ's part. Yeah, because in real life, Jamie Lee Curtis is PJ's part. Oh, okay. And in real life, PJ's really Jamie Lee Curtis's part. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. PJ is like a real good girl. Yeah. In real life. Yeah. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Is there anything you would want to add or, or, you know, something we didn't cover that would be relevant to the Halloween movie? No, I, no you guys did a great job, you know. I mean, uh, it's iconic, and I, and, I, and I appreciate everybody being a fan of the movie. I mean, I, more than you guys will ever, ever know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just blessed, and I'm glad it, it, it warms people's hearts to see the movie, you know. Yeah. We greatly appreciate your time. And like I said, I absolutely love the movie. I watch it probably every, honestly, probably every six months or so. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and uh, I just, it, it was an honor to meet you. So thank you so, thank so you much for much. your time. Thank, thank you, Tony. Thank we appreciate you. God bless you. God bless you. Okay, Shannon, I'm not going to lie. Uh, that was one of the coolest things <laughs> that I have ever done in my life. <laughs> that was absolutely awesome. Certainly a memory that's going to stick with me for a long time. Yeah, that was that was just unbelievable. I mean, it's been you know over a week now, and you know, we're thinking about that and, and talking about it. And still, I think that's it's just going to be one of those things I just remember for a long time to come. Absolutely. You know? Very cool moment. So, as we know, the movie was directed by John Carpenter, uh, who actually has a Kentucky connection. Carpenter was born and spent the first few years of his life in New York, but later moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and lived in a cabin on campus while his father served as a music professor. He would later attend Western Kentucky University, and it was during a class field trip where the seed was first planted that would one day grow to become Michael Myers. 
Carpenter eventually transferred to the University of Southern California to study film, but he did not initially like horror movies, as he preferred westerns and actions. But in April of 1978, Carpenter, along with some friends and an unknown Jamie Lee Curtis, decided to make an independent film called Halloween with virtually no special effects, no props, no money, and they had 20 days to do it in. But they did have a mask. And I think Shannon's going to tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so the whole concept of Halloween, you know, obviously revolves around Michael Myers. But I don't think that it would have been nearly as successful if it had not been for this very iconic mask. And the the whole idea of Michael Myers is sort of wrapped up in this identity of him wearing a mask because you might remember in the opening shots of the film, the very first thing he does whenever he's creeping around the house and we start to hear the music for the first time is he puts on a mask, right, as, as he's moving up the stairs to inevitably open up the scene. So it's no different when he becomes an adult. Obviously, he goes looking for a mask, and that mask becomes Michael Myers, right? We, we talked about this in the interview, and, you know, we talked to Tony Moran about his interactions with this mask and how he felt about it. And uh, it was just really interesting to me when I dug into the history of what this mask was all about. Uh, a lot of folks who are familiar with the series know that this mask is a likeness of William Shatner, right? So uh, the mask was actually created by a company called Don Post Studios, or DPS. And they created this William Shatner mask in 1975 for a movie titled Devil's Reign. So what they did in, is they cast the likeness of William Shatner for the movie because, and I've not seen the movie, but... I haven't either. Yeah. They're, they're, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. It, it's kind of interesting. So they cast uh, William Shatner as well as some of the other actors in the movie because there's apparently like a melting scene <laughs> and you can't really melt William Shatner, right? <laughs> so uh, they cast this mask and several copies of it and they use that to, you know, kind of get the special effects of the scene. But after they'd done that, they held on to this likeness and they started to produce it and release it into uh, costume stores where people could go out and they could dress as William Shatner uh, for Halloween. <laughs> and do Priceline commercials. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Priceline negotiator. Yeah, there you go. So uh, with this mask, um, you know, John Carpenter actually sent out a team to locate and find what would be one of the best uh, mass for the job. And he had a few ideas in mind, and one that he actually was considering before they brought back to him this William Shatner likeness uh, was a mask of a clown. So, uh, you know, one thing that occurs to me is obviously Michael was dressed as a clown when he was the six-year-old boy at the beginning. So this would have kind of been an interesting throwback if they had a went right. ahead and went forward with the clown. But I think in, it would have certainly been a different movie if they had done oh, that. Yeah. Because those two different masks cast two very different tones. Um, and, and the Michael Myers mask is creepy for a variety of reasons. It's not really the mask of a monster. No. it's uh, To me, when I look at it, it it's a mask of nothing. It's yeah. like you, you have no idea what's going on in the mind of the person behind that because it's just expressionless. Yeah. And I even, you know, harken back to the name itself, Michael Myers, when I'm thinking about him wearing this mask, it's just a mask of a man. And yes, it's William Shatner, but it, it becomes its own thing, right? It becomes the shape, I think, is right. actually oh, yeah. how he's yeah. credited uh, in the credits of the movie. And uh, the name Michael Myers just sounds like an, an everyday name. Right? Oh no! Yeah, this yeah, is very, a very common the name. Yeah, guy next door. Yep. Right, and I think that's what they were going for there. His name wasn't Dracula. It wasn't Frankenstein. He wasn't the Wolfman. He was the little boy next door. You know, yeah. he, he was Michael Myers. And, and, and we talked about that. That you know, up until this point, a lot of uh, you know horror movies we were talking about with with monsters and and the the, the bad guy, so to speak. Uh, you know, you come to their turf, right? You know, you're yeah. in a castle, or you take a wrong turn and you go down an alley and uh, or a wrong road, like in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, right. But you know, this guy's just going through the suburbs. I mean, he's just yeah. going from house to house. I mean, you know, there's you know homes 50 feet from each other, and it's like you know, literally, the boogeyman has come to you. I think uh, that's where the terror is, because to some degree, suburbia is supposed to be the safe zone. Absolutely. Right. And a lot of 
places. They are very isolated communities with the whole intention of sort of setting up this utopian society, right? Kind of uh, away from everything else. And yet the boogeyman still has reach within right. that society and he's creeping through the backyards. And I think that adds to the terror. So regarding this mask, once John Carpenter uh, had the mask, it was painted white and the eye holes were widened just ever so slightly. And, uh, you know, when I'm thinking back, I don't remember seeing Michael's eyes very often. Uh, Most of the time when I recollect Michael Myers, I think about these dark, sunken-in holes, almost like shadows for eyes. And this mask goes a long way toward creating a vibe that is very scary. It's very intimidating, and you really don't know if there's a human behind that mask, at least in the physical sense, because you can't see the eyes. Um, and also with the mask, the hair was sort of teased out a little bit because if if you recall William Shatner, this was a, you know, a Star Trek sort of likeness. Yeah. He had a very neat cut. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had some sideburns. You know, I think they removed <laughs> the sideburns. Yeah. That would have been a very different movie if we got Michael with these uh, awesome Fonzie sort of, sort of, some, of some, some mutton chops going down the side. Yeah, yeah. So there were at least three of these masks that were purchased, uh, one for filming and two for the stunts. And very famously, people have tried to collect these masks over the years. Oh, I'm sure. You know, so they're very iconic. They're very memorable. And they're almost legendary to some degree. One reason that we know there were at least three masks produced uh, for Halloween is there's a photo that is circulating the Internet. And Jason, you can find this. There's a Halloween wrap party, which was a party that was attended by the cast immediately after filming was concluded. And they must have been very happy (laughs) when this film was over, uh, because in this photo, you can see that they've actually formed a Michael Myers band. So these three masks are being worn by three different well, members of the crew. I haven't seen this. Yeah, I haven't seen that. <laughs> it's really funny. Uh, you have one person who's singing, wearing a Michael Myers mask. He's standing in front of a microphone. You have someone playing the guitar. I think there's a bass in there. And the rest of the cast are just kind of gathered around in what looks to be like someone's living room. And uh, it's untelling what actual song <laughs> is being uh, sung here. But it, it's just a really... Um, interesting photograph, and I think it shows a lot of the camaraderie that was developed in a very short amount of time between these oh, different yeah. actors and the, the crew. So another interesting element about this mask was that um, it was used in Halloween 2 as well, the exact same mask. And I always wondered about this because I think were there maybe two or three years in between the first Halloween movie and the uh, yeah, second? Yeah, there, there, were, there was a little time. Yeah, in, in in between those. Yeah, and I think uh, most notably, Jamie Lee Curtis had actually cut her hair off between oh, yeah. the two films. Got a bob, huh? Yeah, yeah. she got a bob, uh, which between the first two movies, there were two or three years in real time. But in actual movie time, I think this was supposed to be the same night. I think so, yeah. It, it, it picks up. They take her to the hospital. Yeah. And he's, of course, at the end of the first one, you know, he, he vanishes, right? They look out the window. He's there. Right. They look back. He's gone. Right. Yeah. So he's he's out there. He's on the loose again. Jamie has these wounds from this night, and they take her to the hospital, and lo and behold, Michael shows back up again. So, you know, they, they actually give her a wig <laughs> to compensate for her uh, chopping her hair off in those three years. So that's one of the fixes that they do. But also these masks have been through a lot of wear and tear. They, they took a lot of damage in the first movie, but they were still around. And I think they were actually, if I'm not mistaken, in the possession of Deborah Hill, who was oh, one yeah. of the producers on the movie. So it was reused in Halloween 2. And uh, Michael Myers was actually played by a different actor in Halloween 2. Uh, his name was Dick Warlock. And he is a stuntman who has actually worked on over 110 films, and some of his credits include Spider-Man, The Thing, Jaws, Commando, and Spaceballs. Oh, wow. So very interesting credits uh, for Halloween, too. But in continuing to think about this mask, you know, one of the questions that I really wanted to ask Tony, and I'm so glad that we got to ask this, was his expression when that mask is actually taken off in the movie. Because if you're thinking back to the scene, uh, Jamie's character, Laurie Strode, reaches up, she pulls the mask off, and then we see the face of Tony Moran as Michael Myers. 
And we asked Tony about that scene, and he said that Michael was just very lost when yeah. the mask was uh, yeah, removed. I specifically remember him saying that. And then obviously going back and listening to the interview. Yeah. yeah I thought that was really neat to hear him you know, explain those those few seconds there and how he really there's a lot of forethought sure. you know, put into that. I thought, I thought to me, I thought that was one of the coolest parts of the interview. That was. And, you know, he mentioned that not a lot of people had asked him about that. And he was all, only on screen for a limited amount of time. And he said he really wanted to portray something important. And I think he did not only from an acting standpoint, but also from a thematic standpoint. This scene really humanizes Michael Myers in a way that's not really present in the rest of the right. movie. It's almost like that mask becomes him. You know, yeah. so whenever it's pulled off, he loses, as Tony Moran says, a part of himself and he just stands around and he's like, you know, what should I do? So he he reaches down, he puts the mask back on and immediately he becomes Michael Myers again. Right. But, you know, a part of me wonders psychologically what it would have meant for the character and for the movie if he hadn't been able to put that mask back on. Yeah, like what then? Like, you know, what what happens now? Yeah. Yeah. Does he go back to being that six-year-old boy? You know, is he still the psycho, as Tony Moran called him? Uh, You know, does he reintroduce himself into society you know what what's what's the deal with an unmasked michael myers you know we we get a a little bit of a hint of that in the newest movie in the the 2018 movie uh he's in the asylum i think it or is it a hospital uh i think it's it's some sort of quasi you know uh, institution you know for uh uh, criminals is, is how I took that. Gotcha. You know, in the movie. But yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much the opening scene. And that's, that's sort of a terrifying scene in the, the, the new one, the 2018. Yeah. yeah. It is the, the two podcasters we talked about earlier. They come on the scene there in the 2018 movie. And Michael is outside of this facility and he has a chain that's tethering him to the ground. And again, he seems to be very lost. In that movie as well, and I know this was a very spiritual successor to the first film, so I'm wondering if the new directors read into that just a little bit. And did John Carpenter come back for this one? Uh, To some degree. I know when I was doing some research on this and and, uh, and, uh, reading about it that— the, the director of the new one basically said that someone is going to make another Halloween movie. Sure. Uh, and it might as well be a good one. Right. And I think that's basically how he convinced uh, both Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter to come on board. And he basically said, uh, nothing is produced without your blessing. That right. basically you will have input on the final cut and let's do this together. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do a Halloween movie with Michael Myers without John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. And so yeah. That, I think that's how he talked them into to doing this. Oh, very cool. So going back to this scene in the 2018 movie where Michael's tethered to the ground, and he's just kind of looking around. He's lost. Of course, this is the uh, one of the original actors who, who played Michael Myers in the first movie, and I think there were two or three uh, in addition to Tony yeah. Moran. Nick Castle, I think, is yep. the one who's portraying Michael Myers in this scene. Uh, he, he just kind of stands there very solidly and uh, the podcasters take several steps toward him and then one of them actually is so bold as to reach into his bag and take out the mask yeah that's on you (laughs) if you do that that's on you yeah if you're if you're gonna you know call out michael myers then whatever happens is of your design sir (laughs) that's exactly right so they hold up that mask and he starts to turn toward them and there's some sense that whatever was lost inside of him is suddenly coming back as a result of seeing this mask. And I say all that to draw the parallel back to the first movie. It almost seems right. like the covering of that mask gives him the energy, the power, or, or whatever it is inside of him that makes him do what he does. So again, I, I think Tony was absolutely right when he said he wanted to portray something important in in just those few moments we see the human side of michael myers without the mask we see what he could have been what he might still be and then it's immediately torn away from us when he puts the mask just, back just the on the moment he sees it yeah absolutely so this entire movie would be nothing jason without the setting without the place where all of this occurs so let's dive a little bit into the answers and um, that Tony Moran provided concerning the setting, and let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. 
One of the interesting things about the movie, uh, at least for me, is that it's supposed to take place, uh, obviously, in at Halloween, right, in, in late October in Illinois. But in reality, it was shot in April in California. Uh, Tony spoke about this during the interview and about how they had to actually you know, paint leaves uh, to make them look uh, like it was you know, the fall of the season. And obviously, they were green, and they, they painted them. And one of the things that Tony talked about was that uh, and in an independent movie, uh, there are very few people there. And so director, producer, actors, it doesn't matter. Everyone's raking leaves. They're all pitching in, right? <laughs> They're all pitching in, yeah. And so he talked about that, you know, in between scenes, they would have to, you know, to, to paint the leaves, obviously, to begin with. And then they would use uh, industrial fans to kind of blow the yeah. leaves into place and, and throughout uh, the, the yards. And one interesting thing that Tony mentioned uh, that I had never uh, I've never paid attention to this in the movie, but he said if you kind of know where to look in the background, again, we're supposed to be in Illinois, right? But, right. But we're in California. Yeah. But he said if you look in the background uh, in a couple of shots, you can see some palm trees. Now, Jason, there. a week's passed since we did this interview. I looked that up, and sure enough, <laughs> I saw a few palm trees yep. in imaginary Haddonfield, Illinois. Oh, I, and- <laughs> I, I did, too. I went back actually— I think just just a day or two after we got back, and I and I put the movie in. I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna check this out. And sure enough, I mean, I, I literally took my eyes away from the the actors, sure, and I just sort of scanned the perimeter yeah. of of the the screen. And yeah, he's he's definitely right. They're they're there. Yeah, I I think they did a really good job with this with with sort of hiding those. Uh, you really do have to look around, and as many times as I've seen this movie, that never really stuck out to me until I went back and looked for it. Right, and so I just had this picture of sort of these. These young up and coming, you know, actors and actresses and, and directors and producers, uh, and there's really just a handful of them, but they just sort of take over this neighborhood for 20 days, yeah. uh, and and so you can imagine uh, sort of bystanders like, you know, what's going on, or <laughs> or what kind of budget is this that they're raking leaves and putting forth, you know, and if if only they could have imagined, uh, yeah. you know, and even Tony mentions. In the interview, uh, you know, because I asked him, I said, you know, did you in your wildest dreams, did you ever imagine 40 years from uh, from now when you made that movie 40 years later that we would be talking about Michael Myers? And, of course, he says, oh, my gosh, no, you know, not at all. And he actually said he thought uh, it would probably last two weeks at a drive in. Yeah. And so (laughs) and I wonder if that same thought, you know, as the people maybe along the streets that were watching the film uh, you know, be be recorded and, and the actors and raking the leaves and all sure. that stuff, if they kind of had similar thoughts. Uh, I, I'm sure they, they were, absolutely did. Or if they were aware they were watching history, <laughs> you know, be made. That's To me, that's that's really cool. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And, you know, going back to those leaves, as I have rewatched the movie over the years, I've noticed that they talk about scattering those leaves with the fan, right? And then they had to go right. back between the shots and pick them up. They must have had a, a limited budget on the leaves because what's really cool is if you watch Lori walk down the sidewalk for a little while, you'll see the leaves that Tony referenced. You'll see them laying in the background. But the further she gets down that sidewalk, the fewer and fewer leaves there actually are <laughs> because they've just scattered them in this area. That's you know? right. Yeah. You know, while obviously Michael Myers uh, and his mask are, are both just extremely scary, uh, that ominous music that plays in the background throughout the movie also played a huge role uh, in its success. Uh, Tony talked about this during the interview, but Shannon, is there anything else you'd like to add to just that haunting, those haunting notes (laughs) that comes out? I love the music. As I mentioned to Tony, and I, I think he agreed that the music very much serves as a character in this story. In the absence of Michael Myers, we hear the music played almost throughout the entire movie. There are scenes when Laurie is just, again, walking down the sidewalk, or she encounters her friends, or she comes upon the Myers house. Even before the primary tensions of the story begin to become established, we already have this ominous presence in the background that is just foreshadowing what is about to occur, even when Michael's not on the screen. And I think that goes a long way toward really building the tension and the atmosphere of this particular film. As Tony said, John Carpenter composed all of the music for the movie. He couldn't afford to hire another composer. And famously, he rented a studio in Los Angeles and created these simple melodies for the score of the movie. And Jason, they they really are very 
simple from a structural yeah. standpoint. Yeah, and actually, uh, I'll, I'll brag on you, Shannon. On the way back home, you actually pulled up uh, a uh, piano app on your phone and, <laughs> and basically was playing that as, as we were going down the uh, street. So that also sort of added to the uh, the overall kind of environment, you know, driving home through the mountains on a Saturday night, full moon, and, and then you're over there beside me going, do, 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 do. Yeah. I wanted to get home. Yeah, I had a mask in the trunk. I didn't go that far. <laughs> well, no, I'm just kidding. Well, thank God. <laughs> but, you know, th- this music just really sells this entire movie. And I, I think Tony was absolutely on to something when he mentioned that the studios weren't as intri- uh, interested in the movie if it wasn't for the music, right? He said they submitted it without a soundtrack, and it wasn't until the music was added that companies actually started to buy into the movie and say, oh, we, we really have something on our hands here. It's really elegant in its simplicity. Like we said, it's just a few notes, and you talked about me playing it on the way home. It's literally just a run of the right hand and a, and a few uh, you know, kind of bottom notes on the left. It, it sounds fast, but it's, it's played in a really strange uh, time signature. And as I was looking up the history and doing some research on the theme, um, this time signature is just very uncommon, and it's not something that you see appear in a lot of pieces. I think one uh, source cited it as being sort of a 10-8 time signature. Another one said 5-4. And really all that means is it's just very melodic. It's very fast-paced. Uh, and it, it's very repetitious as well. And I think that certainly adds to the sense of dread that we see. And uh, Carpenter actually composed the theme in about three days, right? We, we talked about him renting out the L.A. studio, and he recorded the music. Now, what's interesting here, Jason, is he was scoring the movie completely blindly. So in other words, he's sitting in the studio. <laughs> he doesn't have the film in front of him, and he's trying to recreate you know, the mood of these scenes, and he's almost doing it completely from memory. He has no reference, and he is creating everything that is to become all of this iconic music that we would talk about for years and years and years. But he he said that he was so excited and impressed when he went back and he (laughs) plugged that soundtrack in because it fit almost any scene you put it in. It really didn't matter. It didn't matter if Jamie was hanging out with her friends. It didn't matter if she was sitting in her English class staring out the window. It didn't matter if Michael was driving by slowly in his car at five (laughs) miles an hour staring her down. Anywhere you look in that film, that music is appropriate yeah, and I mean, it just works. Yeah. Every time I hear that music, I mean, I think one thing, Michael's a coming. <laughs> <laughs> you better be checking your uh, surroundings. <laughs> yeah. And he, he was always there, usually peeking out from behind a bush. I, I think <laughs> yeah. in one scene, he's, I don't know if this is in Lori's uh, imagination, but he's kind of like, she's looking out the window of her house and he's standing among this clothesline, yeah. you know, and there's, there's, yeah. uh, I mean, some, clearly there. I mean, he's, <laughs> there's some white sheets dangling yeah. and he's just kind of standing there looking up at her and then it flashes back and he's gone. Um, but that's another instance when that music is just so fitting and oh, yeah. so perfect for the entire movie, no matter where you put it. And, you know, the movie Halloween itself has gone on to influence a number of other films. Tony spoke to this a little bit, but being a fan of these sort of movies growing up, you can certainly see the influence that Halloween has taken on the entire genre. And Jason, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about that influence. Uh, yes. Uh, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, Halloween is extremely influential in the horror movie industry. When you look at the horror movie timeline, it's easy to see how much influence Halloween has had. There was another mass killer who began to kill teenagers by the name of Jason Voorhees, but the first Friday the 13th movie featuring Jason did not come out until the early 80s, just a few years after Halloween came out. Also in the mid to late 80s, another killer with a very unique look hit the the big screen by the name of Freddy Krueger. There were others as well, but it is clear how much of an influence Halloween and specifically Michael Myers has had on the genre. Yeah, I think those were really good movies in their own right. 
um, there, there was just something about the Halloween movie that really set it apart, that really allowed it to stand on its own. And the movies that came after it were certainly influenced by Halloween, but I also think they, they tweaked the formula just enough, you know, that it was its own yeah. thing a little bit. And, you know, in one of the areas that the tweaking occurred was in sort of the, the violence and the gore start, sort of got pumped yeah. up a little bit. If you recall in Halloween, there really wasn't a whole lot uh, no. of that violence and gore in the first movie. It was yeah, pretty and, dry. And I think a lot of folks uh, would, would think that uh, that there is a great deal of blood, that there is a great deal of, of uh, well, obviously there's some violence, but yeah. it, but it's not gory. Right. Halloween is not a gory movie, really. Uh, right. Now, Friday the 13th, I think uh, that went on a whole other level. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Halloween, really, when you watch it, there's not a lot of blood. No. Yeah, and, and it almost feels artsy in that way. It does. I, I don't know if you can put it in that category or not, but in a way, I, I think that sort of very much fits the thematic elements of the movie because they sort of leave it up to the watcher's imagination as to the motivations of Michael Myers. You really don't know why he's doing the things that he does, and I think it's really the the old writing technique of you know not showing the shark. Uh, you know, this harkens right, back yeah. to Steven Spielberg and Jaws. It's a lot scarier when you don't see the thing that's after you. You know, so I think Steven Spielberg a lot of the time didn't show Jaws. And uh, part of that reason was, well, it was financial for one. <laughs> Every time you had that shark on the scene, it was, you know, going to drive up the budget a little bit. But in addition, the shark wasn't uh, in its physical form as scary as your imagination oh, that's exactly right. can make yeah. it out to be. Yeah. And I think the same is true with the blood and the gore and things like that. You really didn't have to see these things playing out in the Halloween movie to imagine what was happening. And I think in some ways our imaginations filled in the blanks far better than 1978 cinema special effects right, ever yeah. could. No, I totally agree. Jason, as Tony Moran said, I think this movie absolutely was just a perfect storm of acting, thematical elements, music, just everything that could go right for this movie did. And with that, I have no other content. Anything else from you? Uh, no, I think that's it. I think uh, our chapter on, on Halloween and ye old Michael Myers is, is closed. I agree. Again, we'd like to thank Wes Wilson, Tanya Webb, and Tony Moran for giving us this awesome opportunity that will not soon be forgotten. On the next episode, we will be discussing the top 10 most influential horror movies ever made, and that will round out the month of October. Thanks everyone for listening, and goodbye. Have a good night. <laughs>